Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Mo speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me for episode number 270, because we're going to be speaking with Sava Kurdimelidis, and he's going to be telling us all about the venture that he's founded called Crowdfunded Cures. I've known Sava a long time, so it was really fun to reflect with him on his life and what he's involved in today. If you enjoy this, then make sure you check out some of the other episodes in the back catalog. And I really do appreciate for those who are willing to share on social media, it helps to get the awareness of the podcast out. So a big thank you to those of you who I'm seeing on LinkedIn. And if you tag me in, I'll reshare it to the Seeds LinkedIn group, which has more than 700 followers. Now let's get straight into this interview with Sava. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Sava Kurdimelidis, who's the founder of Crowdfunding Cures. Thanks for joining me. Hi, Stephen. Th- thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the show because we've actually known each other. I was reflecting, it's like more than 20 years. Yeah. Do you realize that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, time flies. It's um, no, it's definitely, uh, it's, it's, we've, we've got a bit of history. Yeah, yeah. Because it was back at University of Canterbury that we were both on the exec of the what was called the UCSA University of Canterbury Students Association, and that would have been ninety nine two thousand sort of era, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So around student politics. Yeah. So we'll get into that in a little bit. Um, but what I like to do with the podcast is go back in time. Um, so I'd love to find out a bit about your life and first of all where you were living when you were, say, four or five years old. So I'm actually from, born in Christchurch. So I, we lived around Avonhead. Uh, we had a house there by the airport. And I re- went to uh, Rodvale Primary School and just, yeah, had, had a bit of a, uh, basically, well, both my parents were Greek. So we spoke Greek in the house. We were kind of new Greek, but I ended up um, picking up English. But Greek was almost like my first language. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I'm quite, quite mentally Kiwi now, I think, I feel like. Yeah, oh, it sounds like it. I mean, if you you were born here and grew up here, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. So tell us a little bit about that background, like, um, you know, being a child growing up speaking another language, but you're in a culture here. Like, well, maybe the first question is, what had brought your parents to New Zealand? So dad also came here pretty young. He basically came at one years old. Um, so he's he's quite the same, but... Yeah, essentially his father and mother immigrated over from um, Crimea. Granddad was um, basically put in a Siberian prison for around 10 years uh, just because of um, uh, all a lot of the Greeks were, they were put into prison uh, in Russia at the time because they were considered um, enemies of the state, basically, if you didn't, if you had a Greek passport because you were a risk, this was around just before uh, World War II. Mm-hmm. So, and then they went to Greece, and at that time there was a civil war going on in the 50s, and basically they had uh, three options. They could go to uh, Brazil, Canada, or New Zealand, um, but only Brazil and New Zealand would take the older people. Um, so a lot of the Greeks uh, then uh, came over here in the 50s, and uh, my granddad um, sort of built the church here, helped build the church here, and then they had a bit of a Greek community um, and then, yeah, basically my dad uh, came there just, just after he was born in 1950 and then went back to Greece and met my mum. My mum was also uh, born in, uh, in Kazakhstan, as it were, but Greek. 
um, but they met in Greece and um, and then got married and and he he sort of convinced her to come here. Right, yeah. that's amazing. Very international. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And did your grandfather talk much about his experience in Siberia? Like it, that obviously was hugely traumatic to be sent. Was it? You said about ten years. Yeah, so they took a lot of the, the young people, basically. And, and yeah, he, d- he did talk about it. He, I think that's, he, he was basically like an electrical engineer. He never had any kind of formal training, but he was helping with the, the radio, maintaining the radio over there, and that's kind of what helped him survive. And he had his brother and his father help him there. Um, yeah, it was, it was obviously a bit of a tough time, but um, you know, he, he wrote down, um, sort of left, left some memoirs, around it that I've uh, recently was reading and it was very yeah it was kind of like a, yeah, a lot of a lot of people basically they sent 20,000 Greeks there and around um, less than a thousand survived so um, yeah it was a very uh, it was a yeah obviously difficult d- different time but yeah he was a different kind of guy he was obviously pretty um, but he didn't really I mean, he wrote it down, but mm. we knew about it. Mm. Yeah, it's well, it's it's an amazing thing to think like that's like how what percent that's like five percent made it through. Yeah, and the interesting thing, what I was reading is that um, a lot of the people that went there, if you were quite big and strong, you actually died a lot faster. Um, so he had this, you know, he was saying there was some big, really big Polish guy and he just didn't last, you know, cause you're out in like minus 50 degrees and things and you need more food. Um, and they didn't basically have any nutrition out there and they used to boil up, um, these pine cones to basically, um, get the vitamins out of the pine cones cause they, they figured out that would keep people alive and things. So yeah, it was very much sort of concentration camp type thing. So hmm. yeah. Wow. And you mentioned when he came to New Zealand, it was partly to set up a church. Was that right? Was his faith important to him during that time, do you think? Uh, I think that, well, like for Greeks particularly, they sort of, um, uh, you know, being Orthodox is, is just kind of but more of a cultural thing rather than sort of, um, it's just part of, like you, you, you're baptized Orthodox usually when you're, you know, to even get a passport. And, and that was, you know, at the time it's a way of... Um, uh, bringing the community together and, and mm-hmm. uh, there wasn't a big Greek community then maybe sort of 50 to 100 families um, and even today it's not so many uh, maybe less mm. um, there were more Greeks in Wellington at the time maybe about 5,000 Greeks but in Christchurch not not as many but uh, well, the church was a way to kind of get people to um, or help them um, sort of support each other mm. yeah wow it's amazing that's yeah, quite a story <laughs> yeah, to, to go through that. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself and your childhood. Like what was it like growing up speaking another language at home, but then learning another one at, I guess, at school? Um, yeah, I felt like, I mean, for us, it didn't seem difficult. Probably for my friends, it might have been difficult because we kind of spoke like mixed up when we brought, brought people home and stuff. And and, you know, we kind of spoke half and half. But, yeah, I felt like by the time I went to school, um, I, I, could, I could sort of speak English, basically. But, um, you know, my brother's kids, um, you know, we're trying to speak to them in Greek. And it's, uh, yeah, I think with every generation, it probably gets a little bit harder. But for us, it wasn't 
as we didn't notice it as much because I guess we were talking to our grandparents and they were almost talking in Greek exclusively. Mm. Um, and then my parents a bit more, probably a lot more than we would. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, we seem to have, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, obviously it might've been stranger for other people rather than us. Yeah. Mm. And what were some of the unique aspects of like Greek culture that would have impacted on you as a young person? Um, yeah, I think like the obviously the, the food and things where we, we, we sort of and, and that's another thing if I'd had friends around that sort of a lot of them would be crying because, you know, we would be giving them uh, spinach uh, pastry and, 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 and one of my <laughs> friends uh, had never seen it. But at the time and, and you know, the only so we had to give them some uh, shaved carrots. I think that was the only thing we could find. Um, but um, no, I think the um, food was a big one. Um, and we went to Greek school kind of growing up. Um, right. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, there's a, there's a bit of a cultural aspect, uh, particularly in Easter. A lot of the, the Greeks go to the Greek church around Easter. It's mm-hmm. a bit, bit of a bigger deal. Mm-hmm. Um, and how old were you when you went back to Greece? Was that something that you did as a young child or, or, or not? Uh, yeah, so we did actually go um, when I was 11 for two years, uh, just because my mum's brother um, passed away and her cousin, and um, and we, uh, to be with the family, so we did spend a couple of years in Greece, um, but we went to kind of English-speaking schools, um, so we almost, yeah, not so much Greeks, um, traditional kind of normal Greeks, as it were, mm. but um, I've been back since... Um, uh, uh, you know, when I was 25 and then more recently um, uh, when I was in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an amazing place. It's one of those places like you're walking around and realizing that this thing here was built, what, like, you know, 2,000, 3,000. It's just com- compared to other parts of the world, including where we are today, you know, that the history and the buildings and things that you're looking around, it's quite amazing. Yeah, it's very different. I mean, my, my parents have, have this Airbnb, uh, the classic villa, which is considered a, a heritage building because it's like 100 years old um, in Christchurch. And so it's like, you know, it's a big difference over there, um, obviously. Um, yeah, a lot more history. But I mean, even London's like that, you know, you, you've got housing there that's like over 100 years old, just mm. the normal flats. But um, yeah, Greece is, is um, yeah, it's, it's obviously a different... Um, different kind of place yeah for sure so talk us through like you're getting into high school and things were there certain subjects that you enjoyed at that time um so yeah i went to um uh, burnside here i i was quite i really liked um science actually um biology in particular because um i guess that helped a lot with the there were a lot of there's a lot of greek um words that are scientific words that kind of helped me um Mm -hmm. quite a bit and i've always been quite into that um, and then that's kind of what I carried on doing, although, mm-hmm. yeah, didn't do the legal, didn't, yeah, but I was quite interested in, in law as well. But mm. So when you, because we met at university, so did you start doing in biology area or did you start studying law or what, how did uh, that work out? Yeah, so I was doing both basically. Um, so yeah, well, I enjoyed uh, bio, but I, I think I ended up doing law. I didn't really excel so much at law, but um, I ended up. It was it was a 
was I think an important interesting topic and and also something that's um you know um and particularly um that that I've carried on doing particularly intellectual property uh things like that mm -hmm. so what year did you start then what what era are we talking about uh so first year was 98 um and yeah I was doing um at the time kind of my first year it's pretty loaded up but I I, I ended up um graduating um in law and biology um and then i did um stayed another year doing um post-grad bio and then uh profs as well right okay yeah so we would have met yeah it would have been 1999 or something like that i think because yeah. it was the year 2000 that we were on that exec together yeah yeah and what are your memories because <laughs> it's now 21 years ago as we're talking uh oh from the exec I yeah like that was... it was jared who was the um the president at yeah. that time he's actually been on the podcast before oh, wow. <laughs> i went yeah. back and chatted to him oh wow um, yeah. yeah hi 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 jared um yeah no that was uh yeah that was a really interesting time i think it was quite yeah like i said um it was quite a interesting to see the difference on sort of both sides of the fence what it's like kind of when you're in, in sort of a community and you're trying to do things versus the kind of campaigning side where you're all very kind of pie in the sky and making mm. big promises versus the, the reality of actually delivering um on on those things so but yeah and, and then there was some it was almost it was quite a uh, it was interesting i think we didn't obviously have a the stakes were pretty low but i think that's you know actually ends up for some people um it ends up being a you know it makes them even more um passionate about their particular um projects yeah well the interesting era that we were involved in student politics is that like it was still recent memory that fees were introduced you right, know like yeah. it, it people if you'd gone back 10 years before that it had kind of all been free <laughs> yeah. so there was there was quite a sense of activism amongst students you know and yeah. i remember the registry building got taken over yes you know and and there was you know it was kind of a live yeah you know, we're gonna we're gonna it take was. it back and amazing yeah i remember for like a week afterwards yeah i remember that it was like you'd see people walking past and you sort of you know there was a real sort of sense of uh solidarity it was very interesting because it was like yeah they, they had um it was um and i think it's still i think it's an important um issue but uh yeah yeah, well, that's great. So you're getting to the end of your studies, and it sounds like you did sort of postgraduate work. Did you know what you wanted to do next? Um, yeah, I mean, I would have really liked to do something that would use the bio side of things, um, just because I was quite interested in it. But I ended up, um, so my family were a bit involved with the tech community, and they had a company um, called Keyghost that made a hardware keylogger. And I ended up um, uh, providing some uh, support for them more on the legal, commercial and IP side, helping them out with uh, patents and and things like that. And um, yeah, basically went into, it was a bit unusual, I kind of went into an in-house kind of role initially um, and then later um, in a software company in Wellington and then uh, for going into private practice for a bit and then sort of but have been in-house since then. Mm. And you spent time in Europe as well. How did you end up going back there? Uh, yeah, so I yeah initially went to Europe to Belgium uh, and then uh, as an in-house uh, lawyer for a medical device company. 
but came back here, uh, did a master's, and then, um, yeah, sort of five, six years ago um, after that, I went um, back to London and were there, was there for four years um, just because um, I think it's, uh, well, there's a lot of kind of lawyers tend to go into London. There's a lot of more opportunity there, I think, to, mm. to kind of, um, to get, yeah, to sort of, get your network going yeah it's a huge network of people isn't it because like yeah. i did very similar but i i went after i graduated worked here in new zealand and then left in about 2004 mm. and then went straight to london and started working doing temping you know yeah. one week here three weeks there one day there you know oh, wow. <laughs> but they but they paid you pretty well yeah, um, yeah. you know just come and do some temping legal stuff yeah and then eventually found a role with norton rose and was there for one week became one month became a year <laughs> yeah. and i ended up being with them for 11 years so oh, wow. it was quite a long long-term thing yeah yeah yeah, yeah so i can i can sort of i can see how it's sort of um there's just a lot there's a lot more going on i think um yeah very interesting place um yeah i didn't really uh, enjoy the lifestyle so much mm. but um i ended up um uh, in a role where i could work remotely and then so yeah um, and that's kind of uh and then i was in barcelona basically for the last year kind of before covid right and um and what was that like uh yeah that was very interesting yeah so i was there kind of when things um just went from zero to 100 uh, so kind of the month or the few weeks before in mid um march in uh 2020 um basically they were having it was like festival season and they were sort of out on the street kind of 40,000 out on the street and just playing sort of dressing up as as coronavirus and things and at the time it was um uh you know, um, Italy was getting hit really hard and, and people were just kind of outside their reality, really, and, and uh, I guess for the whole world. And then it just, um, yeah, in that mid-March, that's kind of when the whole world kind of collectively, um, yeah, sort of, this is very uh, problematic. Yeah. Well, it's great if you can do the remote working because now you're basically based here in the South Island, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I've been here, but I, I, I've kind of been moving around as much as I can. But um, yeah, the um, uh, I'm very grateful to, to to have the opportunity to 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 stretch the remote working thing. Uh, and I'm a bit of a night person, which which helps. But um, it is a bit um, yeah, it's a bit of a stretch. But um, it can be done. Yeah. So I'd love to turn the attention now a little bit to this initiative that that you've started. Um, can you give us a little bit of the background and the origins to it? Because I'm always curious about how do people get into into something? And then I'd love to know more about it as well. Yeah. Um, so it kind of came out of, um, as I said, when I came back to New Zealand, I, um, uh, so in 2010, 11, uh, 12, I, I basically, um, uh, my fiance at the time got quite sick uh, with Crohn's. Um, and I was thinking about um, potentially doing some academic work around it to sort of help out. And uh, because I realized that um, I was thinking, well, how, how can I sort of maybe do something? And then um, out of that, I sort of um, was looking also online as, as, you know, somebody you care about gets sick. Um, I was thinking, well, what, what can I kind of, what can we do about it? And I realized that a lot of the treatments out there um, that were getting a lot of 
kind of attention online. They didn't have a lot of um, uh, clinical evidence and support at things like off-patent drugs, um, uh, vitamins, what they call nutraceuticals, diets, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that that was actually more of a structural issue with with. And, and due to my background with intellectual property, I realized that it was because basically you couldn't invest in a business model. You couldn't create a business model around that. So I, I went and did a master's um, on that kind of topic and, and I guess the issues with relying on the patent system for, for funding medical research mm-hmm. and looking at how to, how to solve that particular problem. And, um, and at the time also, you know, I, I wanted to actually do something. So it set up a charity um, called the Medical Prize Charitable Trust, and that um, we call it um, it's sort of trading, as it were, as crowdfunded cures, and that um, the idea is basically to uh, implement a, this one of the particular ways of solving that problem of therapies where you essentially can't enforce a monopoly price, things like off-patent drugs, repurposing off-patent drugs, um, supplements, diets, uh, lifestyle interventions, things like that, and the idea is to use a a pay for success contract or you could think of it like a prize and that's kind of how how basically um that that's when it started basically and then um it kind of took a bit of a dip and then more recently um due to covid and a lot of um things around that i've been uh and particularly like a lot of hype around the use of off-patent drugs uh, like um, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin and things like that to treat COVID, I've I've thought that this is an opportunity to kind of highlight this particular issue and and the solutions. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I mean, because it's vast quantities of money potentially to to find the cures, right? That's That's part of the problem is that it takes a lot of research, a lot of time, a lot of effort. But what you're saying is the companies that have the money probably would have not much incentive to do that if the patents or whatever it is that results ends up being just available for anybody. Correct. I mean, that's that's the issue is that there's no business model. I mean, even if they had a patent, say, to repurpose, like, you know, I don't want to even say it, but ivermectin, let's say, let's say some dosing of ivermectin actually reduced... Um, uh, pancreatic, uh, sorry, no, <laughs> um, but uh, COVID or something, or just you know maybe you could nebulize aspirin and and spray it up your nose within and within um, seventy two hours when you start getting symptoms and that reduced uh, your your chance of going to hospital by ten percent. Now that could save governments billions and billions of dollars, and you know potentially um, governments should be willing to pay that for that kind of innovation. The issue is is that um, and pharma companies would fund it. The problem is if they go and do that research um, and pay for those clinical trials, spend, and it's going to be a lot cheaper actually to look at aspirin and a lot of off-patent drugs um, and nutraceuticals because it's almost like 100 times cheaper actually than the $1 billion it costs to, uh, in 10 to 15 years, it costs to make a new drug. If you actually repurpose these existing drugs, you could um, get regulatory approval for as little as 10 to $15 million. Um, but still, that's a big chunk of money, even for you know to raise and to just give away when you essentially can't um, stop other people from taking um, you know the off patent drug off label. So it's it's just a it's a gap in the way that the incentive structure is made. Mm. Um, it's more of a structural thing. Mm. Yeah, I had a chat 
recently um, about med tech companies and the fact that often there will be an amazing innovation or idea mm. and that idea could potentially save lives you know it could potentially be used in Africa or India or other places but the temptation for the company would be to monetize it and get as many profits as possible mm. if they're driven by more profit motives rather mm. than purpose motives mm. <laughs> so it's this tension isn't it where there's public good yeah. and private gain yeah i mean and and my view is and i think I, I sort of write about it is that i mean there's i i personally think um i'm not i'm not i don't have an issue with private um incentives and and, and private gain i think what the problem is is that that's though that's not usually aligned with public good and purpose and you know there's a quote the economists say there's no bad people only bad incentives and this is kind of where where we're trying to get at with saying well let's try and make it profitable and maybe not as profitable as as patenting but but you know you can make a profit a return on investment at least um through engaging in public good medicine or um but um unfortunately under the current system the only you're incentivized with patents to kind of go after the most lucrative um, markets um, and those might not be the most um, ones that lead to the most public good. Mm. So how would it work then? I've identified something that needs a cure <laughs> mm -hmm. and I've got the expertise. Um, yeah, just talk us through how it would actually work. What would be my incentive to, to do this and where's the money coming from to incentivize me? Okay. Um, so, I mean, it all rests on one thing that sort of makes or breaks it, which is the ability to find um, what they call a payer. So things like a government or, or a uh, health insurer or even a, a philanthropy or, or even the crowd, just anyone that's interested in, in the cure, let's say, um, which would be demonstrated in successful clinical trial data. So first thing you, you need is, is for those people to basically agree to pay for successful clinical trial data in the same way they would pay for uh, a, a patent. Um, and one way to calculate that, there's, a, there's, a, there's an area called pharmacoeconomics where basically they pay for something called, they, they come up with something called a quality-adjusted life year. And that's kind of how our government figures out how much to pay for patented drugs. So $50,000, let's say, for one year of healthy life. That's kind of how they work it out. The issue is that at the moment, they only pay for that through the patent system. There's no ways of incentivizing them to generate, um, to, to, to basically pay that amount for off-patent um, or unmonopolizable um, interventions. So let's say, in theory, we could think of it like a prize in a very simple way, what we call a pay-for-success contract. Government says, we will pay you up to $10 million, let's say, um, for off-patent clinical trial data that reduces hospitalizations by X amount, or we'll pay you up, to, you know, we'll pay you $10,000 per prevented hospitalization or $100,000. You come up with an amount that they would pay and then they could extrapolate that. So that with that 10 million available, um, then you would, as an investor and, and as a researcher uh, uh, that has an off-patent um, intervention or nutraceutical, um, you would then be able to seek um, investment from impact investors that would say, okay, well, I'll lend you 
there's 10 million available, I think you've got 10% chance of success, I will lend you, you know, a million dollars or less um, to, to fund your clinical trial, um, and we'll take a punt on it. And if you're successful, we'll get our million back plus something else? Yes, yeah. you, you might get 10 million back, but then they might have a few shots at goals. So, you know, again, it, it, the idea is that the market, if there's a reward there, the market will, will price in um, what they think um, they can lend. And it doesn't even have to be 10 million. It could be 5 million, it could be 1 million, but it just means the amount then available from impact investors to fund these off-patent therapies is a lot less. But, you know, it just it also means that if you're a researcher and trying to fund repurposing an off-patent drug to treat cancer or COVID or Alzheimer's or whatever, then you might be able to um, now get seek private investment when before you'd only be able to go uh, to public um, uh, grant through the grant mechanism, which is very uh, competitive, and and they often don't fund uh, phase two, what they call phase two clinical trials for efficacy and things, just because of the expense. Mm. Well, like most things in life, it comes back to the money, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Where's the money coming from to then incentivize people to to do it? So, yeah. are you? engaging or starting to have conversations with people who might have access to that from a government perspective or is that the next step we're trying i mean we are engaging with them i've had conversations with people in the nhs and obviously um and in large philanthropy uh uk uh, philanthropy called life arc with uh, last week actually i spoke to the u.s government um agency called barda which is basically they do the um uh, bioterrorism um they basically make uh, countermeasures for for bioterrorism they've got a 1.6 billion dollar budget um the issue is is that a lot of them are kind of stuck in their in and uh, they have they, they do more direct grant funding um and and this kind of pay for success model is quite new um and you know so you have a lot of institutional inertia um and so it does require a lot of convincing and mm. we're thinking that maybe one of the better ways is to do a pilot is to really focus on say high net worth individuals or public crowdfunding um, to sort of validate a pilot um, and then hopefully uh, once that's once you show that actually this this model can work um, you might get governments and and health insurers and and uh, larger philanthropy to, to to put some to pick it up mm. yeah it strikes me that so often in life just generally there is the money there it's actually out there but it's about saying let's okay let's make the decision to do this you know like if you look even at like covid lockdowns and things we've got to get the homeless off of the streets you know so it, within you know days homelessness was eradicated for mm. a very short time mm. but it just shows that if the incentive is there you can do amazing things mm. and when it comes to some of these diseases and 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 you know cancers and all of the things that we all probably live in fear that one day we also will have this um you know the fact that we don't devote so much towards research to then find a solution it's kind of a short-sighted thinking isn't it yeah, and I mean, it is that you do have this problem with, um, I guess, the the tension between uh, the public good aspect, like you talked about homelessness and things, um, and so 
you know, th- th- there is a lot of public benefit to, to preventing homelessness, but there's no private incentives to do it. So this is, again, this is actually ironically what we're trying to do, um, these pay for success or what they call outcome-based financing or social impact bonds has been used recently um, to try and address the homelessness problem by creating private incentives to um, uh, get homeless people off the street. And what they'll say is if you can get a homeless person off the street, put them into a home and give them a job, we'll give you, you know, 5,000 pounds or 10,000 pounds. This kind of started in the UK and it's moved into um, into the US. There's probably about, yeah, $500 million in social impact bonds that have been raised. Um, and that's making it uh, not, not just for homelessness though, um, but this makes it now a, uh, a private incentive and the idea is that will improve innovation the and you talk about the short-sightedness and again it's a structural issue where where i guess the incentives aren't aligned and but it is as you say there is money out there there's money being spent there's money being wasted i mean you if you can get a homeless person off the street it actually saves the government a hundred thousand plus you know and extra policing and, and 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 support services and things so from their perspective it actually makes sense to implement these um, incentives uh, it makes economic sense and it's scalable um, so you know that's really what will what we're thinking is that you know you can fix a lot of these issues with playing around with what they call financial innovation mm. yeah i guess it's the the challenge is to help people see that big vision you know because i'm just reflecting at, at the time we're recording this we've kind of seen billionaires who are racing each other for five minutes to float in space yeah. and how much does that cost you know yeah. to 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 go for a joyride and then come back down and and be kind of celebrated as heroes like wow richard branson that's that's amazing yeah you're so brave and and yet we've got these huge inequalities Mm. in terms of health and um issues that that need fixing yeah i mean i I would look at it another way i think that's that is kind of it does leave a bad taste in people's mouths but from my perspective i'm quite pro I mean, I guess almost maybe a, a utopianism, but a te- technological, I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'm pro-tech. I, I think anything, I think we we can live in an abundant world. Um, we can solve a lot of our problems as long as we coordinate. As you say, we can all coordinate. One of the best ways for us to coordinate to solve problems at the moment is through capitalism. For whatever reason, that seems to work the best. Um, to get thousands of people to work on a solving a particular problem. And, and you know, if people want to try and promote space flight, I think, you know, you're obviously going to have to have rich people take, take the risk first. And, 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 and they might be incentivized to do that through, through whatever reason. But um, I agree that, that there are more pressing problems. And, and uh, you know, if only we could make it uh, as lucrative or, or like it's interesting to, to a lot of these high net worth people to say solve um you know create an off patent cure for 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 for, for, a, for a disease for cancer um that would um that would help a lot more people um mm. than a current this sort of current systems mm. yeah it's a fascinating topic that's for sure i just think that the system itself is broken when the top 10 wealthiest people in the world have as much as like the bottom i forget the percentage but you know what i'm talking about yeah, it's yeah. like the bottom 40 percent, 50 percent 
yeah. has as much as the top 10 or 20 or something. Yeah. Just, just, yeah, really. Yeah. Yeah. No, inequality. I mean, that's, that's a huge thing and, and that's going to bite people. Um, and, and, and I think even, you know, Gates and things like that, they all talk about it, they say, mm. but that's, you know, again, that's to do with, um, I think it's an economics issue and it's an, and it's, a it's something that we as the people, I guess, or as government, um, are supposed to fix, you know, we're supposed to implement, um, I guess what you could even call it a contract, a social contract to, to basically have, have something that's a win-win for everyone. And, and, um, and more importantly, something that's rational and more efficient than, you know, currently a system where irrationally we have sort of wealth accumulating to very few people. Um, so yeah. 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 No, that's right. Well, if people are interested in finding out more, what would be the best way to connect or, or reach out? Um, so we've got a website called, uh, crowdfundedcures.org. Um, that's got, uh, and we've, uh, uh, we've also got a medium. Uh, if you look at the, our, um, a blog on the, you can access it through the website. Um, and you can reach out to us, uh, through various social media. Uh, we've got a Facebook, Twitter, um, yeah, Reddit, YouTube, uh, Discord, uh, Telegram. So wow, you got it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're trying to sort of spread ourselves quite wide. Obviously, um, yeah, it's, it's we're just sort of getting into that community building phase and trying to get the message out. Yeah, and you said that you'd written about these topics as well, right? So if people is that through the blog or? Yeah, so I did a blog. Also, I'm trying to um, uh, put a book out based on. Um, the ideas in my thesis uh, in 2014 uh, called Patent Pandemic, and I'm hoping to publish that on Amazon soonish. And it sort of talks about the gaps, the misaligned incentives under the patent system, and and mechanisms to fix that through these um, sort of uh, contract uh, contractual based approaches. Mm. Had you did you look into the history of patents and like how it all began? Is part of that. Yeah, so I mean, uh, but yeah, patents obviously is very old, um, well, not obviously, but yeah, it sort of started in Venice, I think, they, they, they gave, uh, they were, the issue was there were a lot of inventors back then, sort of around the Enlightenment time, and, mm-hmm. and they were kind of, had these amazing inventions, but they were just keeping them secret, and, and they died usually with their inventions, so the idea that, that they came up with at the time was to say, look, if you can tell us your secret source, your secret formula, um, or how to build your invention, um, then we'll give you a, a government-mandated monopoly right to be the only people to sell it as long as you tell us the secret. And that sort of grew, and then, and then in, the, in, the, um, in England, um, the first statute, statute of monopolies, so it was in sort of 1624. So we're talking kind of almost 400 years ago. Wow. Um, you know, that's when it sort of started. And then it's a very old idea but you know it is essentially a contract it's saying you tell us your secret and then we'll give you a government mandated monopoly and the, the problem with that is that it doesn't there's certain in, at least in the medical space it, it it doesn't really work because you might tell someone your secret of say you know you can treat covid with you know nebulized aspirin or something like that or, or you can treat cancer with some some off patent drug um, but that doesn't help anyone because you need somebody to pay for the clinical trials. And, and with a patent, you can't if you, if you can't stop everyone from using that particular intervention, you, you can't get the money. Um, so it's it's sort of a it's a bit of IP that just doesn't work for a lot of um, 
a lot of medicines. Mm. It's a fascinating topic. There's a lot involved, isn't there, with with patents? And... Yeah. No, it's it's not. Yeah, the issue is it's kind of you know people's eyes might glaze over, but it's 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 a little bit. But I'm I'm quite interested in the whole idea of um, um, uh, incentives and 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 how these kind of you know even something like copyright and things like how that works to incentivize people to create new works and and, and sort of generate um, new innovation and, and new creativity just by giving people a right to exploit their their uh, their efforts for 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 a limited amount of time mm. I think copyright's kind of gone too far like particularly in the states there's like a I think a corporate copyright there's this there's this graph that basically as soon as copyright uh, as soon as Mickey Mouse basically copyright runs out, they end up lobbying uh, to extend it for another 20 years. So I think uh, copyrights in the US is like 125 years or something for, for corporate copyright. And then uh, for other, if you're an author, it's 70, it's after you, you die plus 70 years, which is quite a long time, I think, uh, for, for, for a, it doesn't really fit. But, you know, and that's, yeah, so the idea of, patent and, and IP reform and how you can sort of tweak it to avoid these sort of um, inefficiencies. I'm quite interested in that particular topic. Mm. Yeah, the the whole thing is fascinating because it actually is, maybe it's only to you and me, <laughs> but it's the whole thing is a fiction, really. Correct. Like who, who mandates that it's 70 years? You know, like why mm. is it 70 years? Why is it 125 years? Why is it anything? Yeah. And the thing that I worry about is that sometimes um, we, I use this expression a bit, but, you know, we're fish in the bowl. Mm. We know what we know, and we think this is the way it is. Yeah. But actually it isn't. It, it, yeah. it doesn't have to be the way yeah. it is. Yeah. And is there systemic change that, that would be a better solution? Yeah. And I'm in particular kind of related to this, but I'm thinking about indigenous knowledge. Yes. You know, like if you think about Maori people who have been here for hundreds of years and, and maybe there's a knowledge within a particular tribe about how to use a particular plant or, you know, something, some medicine that can be developed. Hmm. Is it right that an individual could go and sell that knowledge you know, the IP in it, hmm. that it could then be bought by a company hmm. that it, that then alienates it from the original source, hmm. which is, you know, the practice of decades of hundreds of years. Hmm. There's something that's, it is really jarring to me. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I, I don't think that it's a, it's a great system in many ways. Yeah. I mean, there is, and that's the issue. And you talked about the fishbowl and, and I think the two fish and then one of them sort of says, oh, how's, how's the water? And, and, you know, you're in this environment. And I think the patent system is, is a lot like that. We don't notice it. And, and particularly in medicine, um, you know, people just see, uh, and particularly in the pharma industry, they see everything through the patent lens and they don't sort of, and, and even with us, you know, our economic system, we sort of just take it for granted. And, and we don't, um, and, and there are issues that come up, like what you talk about, yeah, the, the indigenous knowledge and, and pharma companies traditionally, they call it uh, bioprospecting, basically, where they just go and, uh, you know, talk to these tribes and, and figure out which plants are, are the ones that are, that are um, effective. And then they'll basically try and reverse engineer that and then not give any um, sort of, um, the, 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 the tribe doesn't get a royalty or anything like that and they make billions of dollars so yeah these things you know can only be fixed through 
contracts through these fictions um, so that, you know, we can fix these inequalities. Um, but yeah, as you say, it's all, it's like that, um, the book uh, Sapiens where it's uh, the whole legal system, even a company, you know, the idea of a company, we, we make this fiction. Um, but what it does is, is it allows thousands of people to work on, you know, problems and you have, uh, you have something that's worth billions of dollars and even money, you know, it's all just an extremely elaborate um, fiction, but it does real things. Um, and, it, and it gets you out of bed in the morning and you go to work and you, you work on some particular, you might be cog in the machine or whatever, but, you know, as long as that machine is, is actually doing something that's good, um, I don't, I don't, I, I think it's a very useful tool to, mm. for good. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's about the stories that we tell each other and ourselves, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, it's just, it's good to have these conversations though, the macro level, yes. you know, just thinking, cause too often we do get caught up in the detail, you yes. know, oh, where are we going for dinner and what, what job do I have to do tomorrow? And yeah. I've got to answer that email. Yeah. It's fun just sometimes to step back from it and go, wait a minute, <laughs> what's actually going on here? Yeah. Well, I think that's, and it's quite, I think there are a lot of people um, sort of turning in that direction, particularly, you know, people like yourself, but we're looking at purpose-driven organizations and B Corps and things like that. And uh, particularly, you know, the younger generation, millennials and things, um, you know, looking at kind of purpose-driven um, companies. I mean, even recently Canva, you know, so they're valued at like 40 billion and, and they sort of have like a, where they're trying to be the biggest company they can, um, but also do the most good they can, and, and and I think that's, you know, important for people. It's 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 they 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 want to sort of they don't mind being part of the system as it were, um, but as long as the as the goal the, the interests of the system are are aligned with their own personal interests mm-hmm. and their own values and their own bigger purpose. Yeah, well, I think it's a shifting, things are shifting. And um, yeah. like we said before we started recording, maybe someone will listen to this in 100 years and go back and think, oh, that's what they were talking about way, way back then. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll put links to your website and all the various things <laughs> where yeah. people can connect with you. Um, but I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. It's been great to reconnect and, and have a chat about your life and, you know, growing up and hearing about your grandfather, you know, and what he had gone through, but then also your own career, you know, interested in biology and the natural world and then IP and lawyer. And then it seems like it's kind of fused together in this sort of how could we actually make things better? And um, so we'll be watching with interest and we'll see how it goes. Um, yeah, but thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview. For me, there was a lot that stood out, but I really appreciated hearing about the patent system and how it probably is a little bit broken. And I really do wish Sava all the best with this endeavor because there's so many needs which we have in healthcare which maybe something like this would help to solve. Make sure you check out all of those various social media channels that he has, which are all in the show notes. If you enjoyed this, then why not tell a friend? The show will only grow through organic growth with people like you telling others. Until next time.